the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? What the hell are we talking about, Danny? We're talking about what the hell, and I mean this even more than I usually mean it here in Trump's Washington, what the hell is going on with Syria? You know, it's funny. Last week we had Carl Rove on the podcast, and we were bemoaning the fact that the only foreign policy discussion we're having now in this, this 2020 election approaches is about Ukraine, and it's not really about Ukraine. It's about It was about uh, the 2020 election and uh, the impeachment and all the rest of it. And lo and behold, here we are a week later, and we've got a real foreign policy crisis going on. We do, and one that was caused entirely by the president's actions, one where he literally snatched defeat out of the jaws of, I wouldn't say victory, but of stability. Yeah. And it is just, I, I can't say inexplicable because I say that too often and I think there is an explanation, but it is, it is so irresponsible what has happened. Uh, well, let's, let's talk for, for our listeners to explain what has happened, actually. So we have in Syria about 1,000 troops that are working with the Kurdish, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a force that we help put together, largely of Kurdish fighters who bore the brunt of the battle against ISIS in Syria. President Trump likes to say that we defeated ISIS. He's right in the sense that we defeated their caliphate. We took away their physical caliphate that had grown under the Obama administration, and he successfully beat it back. He deserves a lot of credit for that. But um, he did it with who? He did it with the Kurds. How many soldiers did we lose? Uh, so General Votel, who was the commander of for, uh, U.S. forces in the Middle East, pointed out that the Syrian Kurds did the ground fighting, and they lost about 11,000 people, had 11,000 casualties in the fight against ISIS, and we had we lost six American tr- uh, soldiers and two civilians in the battle to take away the uh, the Islamic State Caliphate. So we have a relatively happy situation in the sense that ISIS was driven out of its caliphate, but it's not defeated yet. They have 30,000 fighters. They have hundreds of millions of dollars. They have reverted into an insurgency. And so we need to keep our boot on the necks of ISIS because the lesson we learned from Barack Obama's decision to withdraw from Iraq when they only had 700 fighters and almost no money and and were really defeated in in every sense of the word. And all of a sudden we took our boot off their necks and what happened? A caliphate the size of Great Britain what do you? What's your? What do you? I'm, I'm, you I'm laughing. I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I really. I think. I think that we have to go back and look whether we have a single podcast in which you have not used the expression "foot on their neck." Well, because I believe in keeping our foot on their <laughs> on neck. Their, yes. That's right. That or be, sometimes it's our boot. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> it is our boot. No, look, so, Mark, so, you're totally. You're. You're. You. You described it perfectly, and I. I, I want to step back from Syria for a second because. I think that we you we lose people's attention when we say Syria because they're like, oh my God, those people that keep killing each other, yada yada yada. And the only way that we can hope to prevail in these conflict situations to not allow opportunities to bad guys is by working with others. Otherwise, our military does everything. Yeah. That's what's so important about what just happened is not, okay, you know, Syria comes, Syria go. I don't feel that way, but I get it that some people do. That's not the point. The point is that we've been working with people who have been directly supporting the national security of the American people. 
and specifically because we don't want Americans don't want to send tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of troops to every battlefront around the world to fight these bad guys. These guys haven't surrendered the terrorists, uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda and their aff- affiliates. Are Although the they were in Kurdish-run prisons, yeah, many, many of them. Many of them were captured, but they haven't surrendered, which means we're, you know, we, we all want the wars to end, but the enemy gets a vote, and the enemy has voted to continue. And so somebody's got to fight them, and so it can either be us or it can be our proxies. And what we've done fairly effectively, what President Trump did fairly effectively, and the Obama administration at the end did, is they developed a proxy army to do the fighting and to bear the brunt of the casualties and to bear the brunt of the battle. Uh, we enabled them with air power, with intelligence, with other tools that only we, the United States can do. And so and with a small number, like hell. and with a small number of enablers, those enablers, we turned the battle around. So now the Kurds, who are our allies, who took all these casualties, who did all this fighting, President Trump just uh, gave the green light to Turkey to go in and slaughter them. And so that's not just Kurds, by the way. These are Kurds. These are Yazidis. These are Christians, as as uh, you know, as some have said, there there really is a whole mix of religions there. Sure. But but the point being is that, one, this has a terrible impact in Syria because unless we're going to go back in with President Trump's plan to send in thousands of Americans to fight ISIS, we got nobody guarding the prisons. We got nobody to keep ISIS down. So they are benefiting from this. And then second of all, in other parts of the world where we want to have allies do the brunt of the fighting for us, they're not going to do it because we just betrayed our allies. Right. Why would they? I think there's another interesting thing here that people haven't talked about. So I've gotten the bejesus kicked out of me on Twitter because I keep pointing out, sure, Trump's done a terrible thing. But let's not forget that Barack Obama decided not to enforce a red line he laid down, that Barack Obama didn't bestir himself from his comfy chair while half a million Syrians were murdered by the Assad regime, by Hezbollah, by the Russians. So I'm and, I, and, and by ISIS. And I, I'm completely I'm completely unsympathetic to people in the Democratic Party who have suddenly decided that they give a good goddamn about the Kurds. We already have our explicit rating mark, so I'm allowed to say that. Um, <laughs> so I mean, last night, you're, to, I agree with you. And last night's Democratic debate, which I unfortunately had to watch because I was commenting <laughs> on it for Fox News, and so instead of watching the baseball game, I spent three hours watching the Democrats. Go <laughs> Nationals, by the way. Um, <laughs> but look, one of the things that I was absolutely shocked by was how all the Democrats on that stage were channeling their inner neocon. Oh, yeah? <laughs> you know, know. Joe, Joe Biden, you know, when they brought up this this whole situation, Joe Biden said, this was the most shameful decision by any president in modern history, and all of our commanders are ashamed of the president of the United States. And I sat there thinking, the chutzpah it says, takes for Joe Biden, the vice president... Of Mr. Redline. Of, not just Mr. Redline, but Barack Obama, who withdrew all of our forces from Iraq and allowed the resurgence of ISIS to begin with against the advice of our military commanders to say that. Yeah. You were there. It's I mean, absolutely where were stunning. all these people? No, no. Where were, You could take every quote from every Democrat criticizing Donald Trump today and apply it to Barack Obama in, uh, in Iraq in 2011. It would be and it would be just as appropriate. Let me make another point that I think is very worth making. One of the things that we were told very, very, very aggressively when we called on the Obama administration to do more to protect the Syrian people. Remember, he weirdly went in and supported NATO operations in Libya to protect the Libyan people and seemed not to give you know a, a damn in hell for for the Syrian people, which I found inconsistent and inexplicable. But 
We were told repeatedly, it's too dangerous for us to go in. We can't even create a no-fly zone. That'll be too dangerous for us. The Russians have created a no-fly zone in Syria in the last three days. I mean, every one of these claims was spurious, shameful rubbish. So let's let's talk about the president's arguments here. Because the president says, I campaigned as a non-interventionist getting out of the Middle East. The Middle East, all our involvement in the Middle East has been a disaster. And he said, I was elected on getting out of these ridiculous, endless wars that have bogged us down watching over a quagmire. Um, and so I went back and just did a little research into the troop numbers uh, that we have involved. So Americans listening to the president might be under the impression that we have hundreds of thousands of troops in the Middle East in all these different countries engaged in fighting with the, with uh, the terrorists. Um, we have 14,000 troops in Afghanistan, we have 5,000 troops in Iraq, and we have 1,000 troops in Syria. That's a total of about 20,000 troops. Put that number in perspective, we have 37,950 troops in Germany, so almost double the number of troops in the entire, in all of these Middle East hotspots we have in Germany, 12,750 in Italy, 53,900 in Japan, 28,500 in South Korea, so that's about 133,000 troops. And we have three times as many troops deployed in Spain as we do in Syria right now. So the idea that we are overextended and we have all these troops, and the other thing is, it's a they're lie. not fighting. It's they're a, not doing no, the fighting. Right. It's a we lie. Are, you know, when we right. say these endless wars, we're not actually the ones fighting the war in the most case. We do targeted missions against high-value targets, but what we are doing is we are training and enabling hundreds of thousands of proxy forces, Iraqi soldiers, Afghan soldiers, Syrian Democratic forces to do the fighting for us and, and giving them capabilities that allow them to do it more effectively and, against our enemies. And just to add to the incoherence of this administration's policy, we just in response to an Iranian attack on a Saudi oil refinery at Upkeik, we sent thousands more troops to Saudi Arabia at the same time that we were withdrawing these guys who were protecting us from ISIS in Syria. And by the way, helping in so doing, who? The Iranians who were attacking the Saudis, which is why we sent the soldiers there. I mean, I know there's not a lot of deep thinking going on in this administration. I know Donald Trump doesn't wake up and say to himself, hmm, I don't know what to do about Kobane. I really feel for the Kurds. But the incoherence, the mixed messages we're sending to our allies is just unconscionable. I couldn't agree with you more. And look, the reality is that there. one thing I'm very proud of is that a lot of conservatives up on Capitol Hill and other places have spoken out against what the president is doing, I think, very courageously. Because there were when Obama was pulling out of Iraq so many right. years ago, where were all these Democrats saying, Mr. President, this is a terrible idea? All these all these uh, latter day, uh, you know, commanders in chief. Mitch McConnell's been way out front on this. Lindsey Graham, a lot of members of the House. I've been very, very happy. And I hope they keep their voices up. Absolutely. Well, we've got a great uh, guest to talk to us about this today. Michael Rubin is a scholar here at the American Enterprise. Institute. And he is actually, uh, he's an expert on Turkey. He's an expert on the region, but he's also been in, spent many, multiple visits into northern Syria, where he's been on the front lines with the Kurds. Uh, he knows who these commanders are. He knows who these fighters are. He's engaged with them. He knows Turkey. Uh, and he's just a, a fantastic guest. And he's traveling actually in the region right now. And uh, we just uh, spoke with him on the phone. Really lucky to have him. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Mark. Excellent. Where are you right now? Right now I'm in Dubai on route to Afghanistan. Not stopping in northern uh, northern Syria on the way, are you? 
That was last July's trip. Unfortunately, okay. it looks like this might not be the best time to go. Probably not. Well, look, our listeners want, are wondering what the hell is going on in northern Syria. So why don't you just give us the basics? What, what is happening there, and, uh, and why, should, why is this America's concern? When people think about Syria, they think about the civil war, chaos, Bashar al-Assad, uh, the president of Syria's chemical weapons and his massacres of civilians, and so forth. And most people don't realize that in this portion of Syria, it's actually about a third of, of Syria that goes from the northeast corner of the border with Iraq and stretches all along the Turkish frontier. The Kurdish fighters there and the Kurdish militias had at first cleared out the al-Qaeda affiliates. Then they had, against all odds, helped defeat the Islamic State and established, it wasn't perfect, but it was a pretty stable entity where you had Muslims and Christians, and actually some Jews and Yazidis as well. You had um, all different ethnic groups and so forth operate in relative peace and security. I would walk around there without guards, uh, without any um, security when I was there in July. Now, here's the problem. Turkey, specifically Turkey under President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is dead set against having any Kurdish self-rule along their southern border. They say that the Kurds in northern Syria are basically the same as the terrorist group, which was fighting an insurgency inside Turkey since 1984. When it comes to the PKK, it's a Kurdish acronym that stands for Kurdistan Workers' Party. This, this has its origins in the Cold War. And during the Cold War, there was a leader, a guy named Abdullah Ocalan, who led basically a leftist rebellion against Turkey. And he was supported by the Soviets. He embraced Marxism and so forth, as so many groups did at the time. He was responsible for the deaths of both Turkish and Kurdish civilians. Um, the Turks say, although it's not confirmed, that up to 40,000 people were killed in the fight that started in 1984. The true number is probably a little bit less than that, but suffice to say, there was a significant insurgency in the United States backed Turkey against the PKK. Now, Turkey says that that insurgency and that terror group and the PKK has never changed. Now, here's the other issues. One, with the end of the Cold War, the PKK evolved. They're no longer the terrorist group, the hard left terrorist group they were in the 1980s. So one of the policy questions out there is, once a terrorist, always a terrorist? Or do we recognize that groups can change? Another problem here is Turkish intelligence. Turkey tends to label anyone a terrorist with whom they disagree. And I mean, you and Mark know, and perhaps you agree, that Turkey labeled me a terrorist because I criticized the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. So cut back to the, cut back to the present. So this group is an outgrowth the, of the PKK. Now let's fast forward. 2014, you have the rise of the Islamic State and the Obama administration, for a lot of reasons, and with broad bipartisan support, decided that it was in the interest of the United States to fight the Islamic State. Now, what happened, I first went to Syrian Kurdistan back in 2014, in January of 2014. I remember because I don't think I told you until February of 2014. <laughs> but at any rate, before I went, I met with some U.S. diplomats because the U.S. diplomats weren't officially talking, not even officially, we weren't talking at all to the Syrian Kurds. And I knew that as one of the few Americans there, 
the first thing the Kurds were going to do is ask me, why don't we have any U.S. support? And the U.S. diplomat said, if you are asked, there's three reasons. Number one, because Turkey is just too important of an ally, and we believe that you have links to the PKK, which is a designated terrorist group. The second reason was that you're not playing nice. Uh, you're not cooperating with the rest of the Syrian opposition. And the third reason was because we think that you have some residual links to Bashar al-Assad regime inside Syria. Now, the question then becomes, why is it that we went from not talking to the Syrian Kurds because we wanted to appease Turkey to suddenly deciding that we were going to work with the Syrian Kurds? And as you know, our forces worked with them extremely productively. And that happened in what year? Why? That happened in 2015. There's a town which, again, is in the news in northern Syria called Kobane. And what basically happened, the Islamic State was attacking Kobane, this traditional Kurdish town, mixed also with some Arabs. And about 100 Kurds managed to withhold this Islamic State siege and then ultimately break it. Now, the reason why this became so important is the U.S. came to believe during the siege, not only that the Kurds were extremely good and passionate fighters and were secularists and were progressive in many ways, but also that Turkey was actively helping the Islamic State. Uh, there was one incident which was caught on video in which the Turks allowed Islamic State fighters, for example, to cross the Turkish border to try to outflank the Kurdish defenders in Kobane. There was allegations made by Turkish journalists that the Turkish intelligence service was providing weaponry to the Islamic State and to al-Qaeda affiliates. And when that, that expose became public, rather than order an investigation into the weapon smuggling, and this was again caught in um, video and photos across the Syrian border, the Erdogan government ordered the journalists arrested for exposing state secrets. But both you and I have been in Istanbul airport, and there were people there who were I mean, quite openly talking about having fought inside Syria. And these were people that had big, bushy beards, and they, they were like casting central for radical jihadists out of Hollywood. And they were actively fighting in the Islamic State. The Turks were providing medical care to the Islamic State. And you can say from a humanitarian basis, if someone comes across your border wounded and seeks medical attention, you should help them, and that's true. But that doesn't mean that you then release them and have them go back to the Islamic State. So there were all sorts of reasons that, again, it's not an Obama versus Trump thing or a Republican versus Democrat thing. There were a lot of broad bipartisan conclusions in the Pentagon, in the intelligence community, and among many in the State Department, you know, we've got to start working with the Kurds because we can't really trust the Turks. I mean, they've basically become like Pakistan on the Mediterranean. And by that, I make an analogy to how diplomatically we were I mean, all allied with Pakistan. But in reality, Pakistan was supporting Osama bin Laden. So this is a really important thing that I think don't, people don't understand, because the pushback that people are giving, uh, the, Trump, the Trump supporters are giving, is that, look, Turkey's a NATO ally. These guys are terrorists. And so why, why would we ally ourselves with a terrorist group or people who we don't have that much interest in against a NATO ally? And what your point is, is that the NATO ally was actually helping our enemy the Islamic State. You're, you're absolutely right. That's a fair summary, Mark, but I'd actually go beyond in that we've got to be very careful about accepting Turkey's definition 
of who is and is not a terrorist, especially because for all the journalists which Turkey has put in prison, and you know that Reporters Without Borders has labeled Turkey the world's greatest imprisoner jailer of journalists, Turkey will say, we don't have journalists in jail, we just have terrorists in jail. And so as Turkey starts to play fast and loose with the terrorist label, we've got to be very careful about accepting their definitions. But let me ask you this question that you actually addressed in this really good national interest listing of, of you know, excuses that apologists have made for, for Trump's decision. Did Turkey really... Didn't they didn't they get a green light from from Trump? I mean, isn't he in fact sanctioning Turkey for doing exactly what it was that he agreed on the phone with Erdogan that Erdogan could do? And how could the uh, the argument goes, how could 100 American troops stop Turkey from invading northern uh, Syria? Well, okay, there's two different questions there. I think it's fair to say um that Trump gave Turkey a green light. When you say we're going to withdraw our forces and you can do what you want, which is basically what at least Erdogan's side of the readout was. That was released first, and we had time to object to it or correct it. It became clear that something had changed and that we weren't going to stand in the way of Turkey. And Turkey responded by sending its troops across the border. It's disingenuous to say uh, we never gave Turkey the green light. I mean, it, it simply is disingenuous. We seldom give a green light historically. Sometimes we, we have a little flashing red light or a yellow light, seldom a green light. In this case, it was a green light. Now, with regard to Mark's question, I mean, what could 100 troops really have done? Well, first of all, Turkey has long blustered. And every time we've pushed back, they, they simply have refused to, to push forward. They understand how serious we were. If we're worried about Turkey, think about Russia. When Russia sent some contractors, and I put that in quotes, across the, I guess it was the um, Euphrates River into northeastern Syria in their mandate, we responded and killed 200 of them. We had credibility. Our red line was firmly established, and Turkey understood that. And, and Russia, by the way, Mar- Mar- uh, Michael, when that happened, when we knocked back those contractors, everybody who had been warning us that if we confronted the Russians in Syria, it would turn into World War III, the Russians basically did nothing. They did nothing. And the other thing, and this is what really bothers me, especially for those who say, I mean, we can't be fighting forever wars. We, we can't play fast and loose with our military deployments, having them all over the globe. The 100 troops in Syria or so, they were amplifiers. They were there in order to partner with the local forces and basically by having them there, by having that intelligence liaison, by having that training relationship, we were able to forestall a far greater deployment if our goal was to A, stabilize the region and B, prevent the Iranians and other bad actors from regrouping the Islamic State regrouping the Iranians to form a land bridge. So we have to understand there's a difference between putting our troops everywhere in the globe and forming these tight partnerships so that we don't have to. I mean, one of the things that I think many people should be aware of is when they say that we have too many allies or that we shouldn't have our forces all over the place, Trump's actions are doing more to delegitimize that argument than anything else, because by embracing the theory of Rand Paul, 
we're seeing just how unstable the world can become. So let's let's go to the big picture here. So Trump just did a press conference with the Italian president, and he basically said, look, because uh, the, the Syrian forces have just entered Kobani, that town that you were telling us about, which was uh, liberated from ISIS. And he basically said, look, what does this have to do with the United States? Syria doesn't want Turkey to take its land. Turkey's trying to take some of its land. Are we supposed to fight a NATO ally to help Syria, a country we don't like, protect its land? Like, why, what does this have to do with America? Why should we be in the middle of all this? Well, there, I mean, the big picture, this goes back to that, that broader question. When we talk about Turkey as a NATO ally, are we talking about Turkey the way it was 20 years ago, or are we talking about Turkey today? We've got to gear our foreign policy to reality rather than we want, we wish our allies would be. And when it comes to Turkey, the simple fact of the matter is the reason why Turkey had sided with, uh, or at least aided the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda affiliates was to some extent because of ideological solidarity among some portions of the regime. And that hasn't stopped. And so if you have Turkey, whether it's technically a NATO country or not, again, being put in charge of the Islamic State, you know, as Turkish forces started going across the Syrian border a week and a half ago, the Turkish interior minister said, you know, the Europeans, and I'm quoting, they pissed themselves every time anyone brings up the Islamic State, we are going to make a partnership with the Islamic State. Well, the goal of the United States shouldn't be to have a NATO ally become a partner of the Islamic State. It should be to contain and defeat the Islamic State and that was where the Islamic State was the day before the Turks invaded. They were contained, they were in a prison camp, and now Turkey not only has allowed some of them to go free, but in Kamishli, this other town that's under assault, where many of the high-value targets were, Turkey bombed the guard posts to facilitate the Islamic State prisoners going free. So... Let's talk about the broader question of, of whether we have interests in Syria. You know, you and I and, and Mark have, have all argued that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you care or not about the Syrian people, much as it doesn't matter whether you care about the Iraqi people or the Kurdish people. The point here is that this chaos is uh, nothing but an opportunity for al-Qaeda and for ISIS. Uh, is that, is that a, a fair argument? Well, I, I ultimately think it is fair. Look, the reason why we were concerned about Northeast Syria was because, one, we didn't want a resurgence of the Islamic State or al-Qaeda. And number two, we didn't want to give the Iranians the so-called land bridge, an ability to sort of convoy weaponry to Lebanon and Syria and the Eastern Mediterranean where they could be used in a broader war. And so... Trump's deal with Erdogan has undercut those two security imperatives of the United States. That's what's so unfortunate. Now, when Trump talks about we don't want to be engaged in forever wars, this isn't Afghanistan. This isn't even the Philippines. The fact of the matter is those hundred forces there were very secure. The Syrian Kurds were the group that I've had U.S. Special Force operators and so forth say the only group, indigenous group, they've ever really trusted to watch their backs. And now that's gone. Are we really going to put our security in the hands of Russia, given not only Vladimir Putin's worldview, 
but the fact that the Russians are in deep with Iran and other adversaries of the United States. If you really want to see the big picture, Mark and Danny, I think what we need to realize is that there are a group of countries out there, Iran, Russia, Turkey, Venezuela, Cuba, and um, some others that fundamentally want to remake the post-World War II liberal order. And I don't think that anyone in the White House is having a serious conversation about what that would mean. Look, I think most Americans looking at this situation are just confused by it. They're like, why do we care about the Kurds? Why do we care about who controls Kobani? Why do we care about all these, you know, let these people fight out their own wars. It's not, it's not our problem. And I think the one thing that, that they do care about is ISIS and the terrorists, right? That we don't want the terrorists to control Kobani and we don't want them to have to reestablish uh, themselves after having been driven from their caliphate. Isn't it true that it's the Kurds? I mean, we all, I think General Votel said that the SDF, these largely Kurdish uh, Syrian Democratic forces, they took the brunt of the, ba- uh, the battle against the uh, Islamic State. And now we're pu- Trump is pulling our troops out. The Kurds are turning their attention to protecting themselves against Turkey. Who's going to take care of ISIS? You know, that's a great question. And honestly, Mark, it goes a little bit beyond that, because what happens in Syria doesn't stay in Syria. What, again, many of the people who talk about endless wars, and you wrote an excellent column on this in the Washington Post, by the way, but what a lot of people say is, what should we be doing in Syria? Why should we be caring about the Kurds and so forth? Let Napoleon handle them, as Donald Trump said. But the nature of conflict going back, let's start with George H.W. Bush. He never expected to go into Kuwait. Bill Clinton never expected to be in um, the Balkans. George W. Bush got elected as a domestic president, never expected to be in Iraq or Afghanistan. And then you have Barack Obama, who campaigned on ending, quote unquote, stupid wars. And not only did he remain in Afghanistan and go back into Iraq, but he was also ended up being in Syria and Libya. The point of this is we never know where the conflict is going to come from. But there are threats out there to American national security and a far wiser, financially more prudent resource cognizant approach is to ally with indigenous forces. Donald Trump, through his actions, has prevented us from doing that for decades into the future. We're not going to be able to rely on allies. We're going to have to invest much more directly if we feel that there is a threat grave and growing against the United States. And that's an unfortunate position to be in. The other point, and I mean, Danny knows this from traveling in the region, but it's something the Egyptians, for example, say. The Egyptians at this point in time are still allied with the United States, although the Russians have been trying to flip them. But what the Russians will say when it comes to Russia's influence operations, what they say when they're talking to foreign leaders is, look, you don't have to love us, but we stick by our friends. You can even use chemical weapons like Bashar al-Assad did, and we're going to have your back. The Americans will never have your back. We don't want to be in a situation where we get that reputation. But talk a little bit about the state of ISIS, because Donald Trump says they're defeated. We know that they're not defeated. They have 30,000 troops. They have $400 million that they, that they stole out of Iraq and have invested in business across the Middle East. They're much more powerful now than they were at the start of the surge in Iraq. And uh, they've, just, they've just lost their physical caliphate. How much of a danger do they pose And how likely is it that they're going to resurge as a result of this? Well, I mean, I think what we're going to get is Islamic State version 2.0. The fact of the matter is 
they are going to have a resurgence. They are going to be able to operate out of this chaos, and they are going to pose a threat. Uh, they certainly want one. It's an ideological challenge. It's not an issue of whether we are there or not. It's not a cycle of violence. It's our ideological enemies determined to strike us, and if we simply withdraw from the region, it just means they're going to strike us closer, closer to home. It's, We've got to disrupt them, disrupt them where they are. One last thing that we need to talk about, because it hasn't been in the news as much as it deserves, we've been fighting with the Turks about our ability to use Injerlik base in southern Turkey for quite a long time, ever since we wanted to use it to go into Iraq. And we have increasingly been restricted, but we still have a significant number of nuclear weapons there. I and for but, listeners who don't know what Injerlik is, it's a it's a Turkish military base that we use uh, for U.S. Uh, U.S. NATO military, operations. For NATO operations, right. that's in Turkish territory. So, risks. What do you think? What do you think about Injerlik? Well, I, I mean, I think it is a liability, and we shouldn't have all our eggs in one basket. To give credit to the Obama administration and then the the Trump administration, somewhat. This has been recognized, and so we now have other options in the region. We use um, a military base in Costanza, which is in Romania on the Black Sea. We have annual military exercises with Jordan called Eager Lion. And a few years ago, we flew F-16s into northern Jordan, and we, we sort of left them there uh, quietly. So we have other options. Plus al Udaid, plus, plus so we've got a bunch in the Gulf as well. And the point of this is, we have other options militarily. We're not dependent on Turkey anymore. There's the problem of having 50 nuclear weapons there. So, And Erdogan has threatened to basically hold Americans there hostage. He did this back in 2016 after that abortive coup in July of that year. The point is, why are those nukes still there? And again, it's this problem of American administrations and the State Department in particular looking at countries as allies they would wish them to be rather than making a realistic assumption. And many countries will now accept U.S. bases thinking that they're get-out-of-jail-free cards. That's what the Qataris do as well. We don't want to take any serious action against Qatari terrorist funding because we have the Al-Udaid Air Base there. Somehow our policy has gotten inverted where keeping those bases operational becomes an excuse to ignore all sorts of bad behaviors among the host regimes. And that's something which I think we need to have a very serious conversation about. Exit question, Michael. So we're in this mess. I think both Republicans and Democrats can re- acknowledge that it's a mess, uh, that the president has messed, this, uh, messed up this situation. What should we do now? You know, we, I mean, we, what we should have done is not given them the green light, but now we've given them the green light and Turkey's in there and the Kurds are turning their uh, their attention to the Turks. ISIS prisoners are escaping. The, no one's there to keep their boot on the neck of ISIS. How do we get – if you were sitting in the Oval Office with the president, how would you tell them to fix this? What a lot of people are talking about is we need to have a no-fly zone. That, again, will put us into the danger of having some sort of conflict with Turkey. What I think many diplomats and the punditry misunderstand is, for all, is two things with regard to Erdogan. For all of his bluster, when the Americans or others stand up to him, he backs down. We saw this in 2010 after the Marvi Marmara incident. That's when uh, the Turks tried to send a ship with personnel and supplies to Hamas. Israelis stopped them. The Turks made three demands. 
One, Israel had to apologize. Two, they had to pay reparations. Three, they had to lift their siege of, of the Gaza Strip. Of course, three never happened. Likewise, we saw similar demands with the imprisonment of Pastor Brunson. Well, ultimately, Trump won Pastor Brunson's release by sanctioning, really sanctioning the Turkish economy, and the Turkish currency plummeted. Unfortunately, now there are some sanctions, but they're a little bit more theoretical in some cases than real. And in some congressionally mandated, legally mandated sanctions with regard to the S-400s and so forth, the White House refuses to implement. We've got to have a serious discussion about pressuring Turkey. The converse of this, just very quickly, is when we do make uh, concessions to Turkey. Some people say, hey, Turkey's an important NATO ally. We've just got to um, bite our tongue and do what Erdogan wants. Ultimately, that doesn't appease Turkey. It simply encourages uh, Erdogan to make greater demands, and that's the dynamic we're in right now. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today and explaining all of this to us. And uh, we Safe really travels. Safe travels. Hey, thanks. Thanks a lot. Well, that was a great discussion. Um, and look, the reality is we have a mess and we need to fix it. And I'm not quite sure how to do it. What do you think, Danny? It's the right question. And, you know, Mark, we talk about this too much, but, but I'm going to do it again. <laughs> so warning for everybody. When we were on Capitol Hill, we spent a lot of time in the George H.W. Bush administration, in the Clinton administration, and then in the next Bush administration, pressing the administration on foreign policy issues. Problem here is, A, Congress doesn't do very much, and B, Congress doesn't have a lot of options. So I'm, I'm not sure how it is that we can do what we need to do. I think that the horses have all left the, the barn in Syria. I, th- I think the solution starts with recognizing who our allies are and who our adversaries are. And I think Michael did told us some very interesting information that not a lot of people know, which is that Turkey was actually helping ISIS right. while the Kurds were fighting them. So Turkey in this struggle is not our ally. The Kurds are. They're technically our ally because of NATO. Uh, and they were very important at a time because it was one of the few NATO countries that bordered the Soviet uh, empire. And it had a very important strategic role during the Cold War. But Turkey has now become an Islamist country led by an Islamist authoritarian leader. And he seems to want to have a partnership with ISIS. And our, that's completely contrary to our objectives, which is to defeat ISIS and prevent them from attacking us. I don't know. I think, that, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, if you want to pull out, broaden the aperture even further, you know, one of the things we ought to spend a little time on at some point talking about is how we are frozen in these sort of Cold War structures. I can't understand why we have this relationship with Pakistan. I mean, Osama bin Laden was there, for heaven's sakes. They're still the ones fueling the insurgency in Afghanistan, and yet we treat Pakistan in the same way that we treat Turkey. The big question that I think a lot of our listeners have is just, which is a question the president is asking and not answering correctly, which is, what does this have to do with the United States? Why do we care? Why do we care what happens to the Kurds? Why do we care what happens uh, in a lot of these places? It's let them fight it out. It's not our business. And I think the answer is, is that we, these are the people that we are depending on to prevent ISIS and al-Qaeda from carrying out another 9-11. These, are the, these terrorist networks are still out there. They're still fighting us. Uh, they're still intent on attacking us here at home. And we don't want to send 
We only have 20,000 troops committed in those countries. Uh, if we imagine what the Korean Peninsula would look like if Harry Truman had followed the Trump Obama strategy and pulled all of our troops out after the end of the Korean War, it would be unified under communist rule, and the, the, and we would not have the development of freedom and 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 free enterprise and trade that we have in in East Asia. The reality is is that if we want to keep these people down, these terrorists down, without having to send a lot of troops around the world, we need allies. We need proxy fighters uh, to do the job for us, and that requires some level of U.S. support and commitment. Nobody's going to fight for us if we, at the first sign of trouble, we go running for the hills and let them be slaughtered. The Afghan National Security Forces aren't going to fight for us. The Iraqis are not going to fight for us. The Kurds are not going to fight for us. The Kurds are not going to fight for us. And now we have a situation, thanks to Donald Trump's decision, that, and I, I was shocked to learn from Michael, that they, the Turks bombed the guard posts of a prison where the high value ISIS fighters These were are the guys. Held. These are the guys who killed American aid worker James Foley in mm. uh, in in Jordan. I mean, these are people who have killed American citizens. They were under guard. They were under lock and key. The the Turks helped them get out. And the notion that they're not going to let them back into Europe or back into the United States is an absolute joke. If one of these guys ends up killing an American somewhere or carrying out a terrorist attack in the West, it's on Donald Trump. It's already on Donald Trump. Let's end with that depressing, depressing notion. Uh, we'll be back to this, I'm sure. Thank you all for listening. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.